Okay, let's dive straight in, shall we? I want to ask you a question. What kind of a church do you want to belong to in this new year, in 2010? Because you do have a choice. There's a fantastic story uh, that's told about um, a particular vicar who was really fed up with his church, sick to death with all the bickering and the backbiting and the fighting that was going on in his church. And he walks out of his church one Sunday morning, heading back to his manse. Uh, and as he's wandering along, there's a, there's a Coke can just on the sidewalk there, just on the pavement. And he looks at it and he thinks, Do you know, if only I'd have been David Beckham. And he wanders up to it and he kicks it with his right foot, imagining it's just dipping over the wall into the back of the net and, and starts... And as he hits this Coke can, it ricochets back off a wall. And you'll guess now that it's an apocryphal story because out pops a little Coke can genie. <laughs> and he looks down at the Coke can genie and the Coke can genie looks up at him and the Coke can genie says, you can have one wish... And the man said, I thought genies did three wishes. And he said, no, I'm a Coke can genie. I'm a junior genie. I can only do one wish. So the vicar thinks for a while. He says, I'll tell you what then. I want you to wipe out world hunger. And the Coke can genie says, look, I'm just a junior genie. I can't do the big stuff. You know, it's a, it's a huge ass there. I'm just a little genie. And so, uh, and so the vicar thinks again. And he thinks for a while. He says, yeah, I'll tell you what then. I want you to wipe out all the bickering and the backbiting and the fighting that's going on in my church. And the Coke can genie looks up at him and says, uh, what was the first one again? <laughs> the, the truth about church is sometimes it's a funny place to be. Sometimes it's a painful place to be. Sometimes it's not all cracked up to be. But I want to ask you this question. What kind of a church do you want to be part of and experience as we head into a new year? In fact, I'm going to push the boat out because I don't live here. Uh, just with the person next to you or in front of you, just you've got one minute. Answer that question real quickly off the top of your head. The kind of questions that the elders and the leaders here spent hours in meetings discussing. Just, just with the person next to you, one thing, one thing that you'd love to see happen. What kind of a church do you want to belong to in 2010? 60 seconds to figure that one out. Off you go. Hands up. Throw it. Yeah. A compassionate church or a passionate church? <coughs> compassionate church. Great. Yeah? We got, sorry, you were just kind of stroking your face. <laughs> Don't do that. It's confusing for me. A connecting church. A church that connects people and connects into the world. Any others? A loving church. Yeah. I think you're describing the church you're in. Yeah? A growing church. Absolutely, because the church is described in the Bible as a body, and if a body doesn't grow, it dies. So, yeah, a growing church. Any others? A happy church. Absolutely. A happy church. That's a great thing to say. Fantastic. Okay, Let, let's move on. Because you do have a choice. You're sitting there and you're thinking, I don't, I'm not a leader in this church. I don't, I'm not an influential person. Well, you do. Because if you want to be part of a happy church, the onus is on you to be a happy person. If you want to be part of a generous church, the onus is on you to set the temperature, to set the agenda and become a generous person. If you want to be part of a loving church, it's not Leon's job to create a loving environment here. It's your job as part of it to be loving even when the odds are stacked against you. You have a role in shaping the kind of church that you will experience in 2010. So I've thought a lot about this because I helped to lead a church in Suffolk. And I've thought a lot about as we've moved into this new year, what kind of a church really do I want to belong to? And I've come up with three, three things that I think I would love to be a part of a church that had these experiences and these emotions going on. So I'm going to share them with you uh, in the short time I've got uh, this morning. First one is this, I want to belong to a church where people are prepared to take a risk in 2010, no matter what the cost. 
I want to be part of a church that's adventurous, that's prepared to take a risk no matter what the cost. In Luke chapter 10, first few verses there, Jesus says this to his followers. He, Jesus, told them, look, the harvest is plentiful. In other words, he's saying the opportunities are massive. And it's true, isn't it? The opportunities you have as a church next year, I mean, they're untold. They're huge. This place could, could just erupt in 2020. It could be the, the, the kind of turning point, the milestone in the history of this place coming up. And you could be part of that history this coming year. The, the opportunity is huge. The harvest is plentiful. But Jesus says, those who prepare to dive in and get stuck into the work of the harvest, well, the workers, they're few. So he says this, pray, ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into this field. And then he goes on to say, but be careful when you pray, because I might well make you the answer to your prayer. Because he says, go, I'm sending you out. Don't just pray for other people to do the work. You do the work. But listen, he says, it's going to be risky because I'm going to send you out like little icky-bicky lambs amongst vicious wolves. So I'm going to call you to do something for me in 2010. I'm going to call you to to be the people who see the harvest come in, but I'm going to send you out like lambs amongst wolves. And then he gives them some packing advice. When you go off on these missions, he says, don't take a purse with you or a bag or sandals. He gives them some fashion tips as well. Don't wear sandals in church, okay? Don't, especially if you've got white socks on as well. Don't do that, he says. And do not greet anyone on the road. In other words, stay focused. Don't let other things push you to one side. Don't look at the TV adverts and say, oh, if only we had a flat screen TV and all those other bits. Of, don't let those trappings pull you down. And distract you. Don't even get distracted by other people on the wayside. You know what I've called you to do. Get headlong into it, no matter what the risk, even though you feel like an icky-bicky lamb amongst some vicious wolves. Get out there. That's the mission I've called you to. Um, Not so long ago in the Times newspaper, I read a a government survey, uh, and it was under the title, Playing It Safe. And it simply said this. You might well have heard this before. It said, 20% of all accidents are happening in cars. And so the survey suggests, if you want to stay safe... Don't travel in a car. 17% of all accidents happen at home. Therefore, the survey says, if you want to stay safe, don't spend too much time at home. 14% of all accidents occur to pedestrians. Be careful how you walk the streets. 16% of all accidents result from travelling by air, rail or sea. So it says, don't choose these methods of transport. And then, interestingly enough, at the bottom of the survey, it said this. However, only 0.0001% of all accidents happen in church. And the conclusion, the conclusion of this survey was, church is the safest place to be. And in one sense, that's fantastic, isn't it? We want to create a safe environment. But in another sense, it can give the impression that we're the kind of pipe and slippers brigade. Where we just put our feet up in front of the fire and it's a cosy, comfy little group. And when Jesus taught his disciples, he never mentioned pipe and slippers. He said, you're ickle-bicky lambs and you're going out amongst wolves. You you need to understand that I'm not talking here about some reckless lifestyle. I'm not suggesting we all go out and be James Bond. I'm really not. This isn't a call to exhaustion and hard work, but it's a call to make your everyday life an adventure-filled partnership with God. Every day. Not settling for this curse of mediocrity that so many of us settle for. Another year goes past and we look back and we think, nothing's changed. The routines are the same. 
Let's not settle for mediocrity. And if you know anything about the Bible, you'll know that when God gives people a mission or a task or a job, risk is always attached to it. Always. God never says, here's your job and here's the pipe and slippers you'll need to do it. Or here's the nice cozy fire to cuddle up alongside. So you look through Hebrews chapter 11, this whole fantastic chapter where uh, the people of God are called to do something for him and the task is always tough and full of risk. So you see in Hebrews 11, God says to Noah, listen, I want you, Noah, to build an ark in the desert with a whole bunch of people pointing fingers and laughing at you because I want you to restart the human race. He looks at another character, Abraham, and he says, Abraham, I want you to leave everything you know, all the comforts, all the trappings of home. I want you to leave that comfortable area and go to a brand new country. I'm not even going to tell you what the country is until you get going. And as you get going and as you begin to find this country, you're going to have a nation. You're going to be the father of a nation. And I know you're 99 years old and you think you get up and go has got up and gone, but I've got other plans for you. There's risk attached. He looks at Joseph and he says, Joseph, I want you to be faithful to me even when your brothers betray you and you end up a slave in prison for year upon year. I still want you to be faithful to me. He looks at Moses and he says, Moses, I want you to leave this relatively comfortable life of a shepherd and go back to Egypt where you're wanted for murder. That's the place I want you to go for and I want you to defy the evil Pharaoh. God calls people time and time again and he has a call on your life for the kind of person he wants you to be as part of this church. And I need to tell you, it's going to be like a lamb amongst a wolf. Okay, it's going to be a difficult place to be. There will be risk attached. God never calls people to a risk-free, comfortable life. But look what God says to those of us who choose that lifestyle. If you read on in Hebrews 11, and I spent quite a bit of time in Hebrews 11 recently. It's a great place to be. Look what he says about some of these people that are prepared to take up the task. What else can I say, he he says. There isn't enough time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. Their faith helped them conquer kingdoms. And because they did right, God made promises to them. They closed the jaws of lions. I mean, they told these stories to their grandkids. We were there when we closed the jaws of lions. They put out raging fires. They escaped from... Oh. Oh, here we are. They escaped from the swords of their enemies, although they were weak. They were given the strength and power to chase foreign armies away. Some women received their loved ones back from death. Many of the people were tortured, but they refused to be released. They were sure that they would get a better reward when the dead are raised to life. Others were made fun of and beaten with whips. Some were chained in jail. Still others were stoned to death and sawed in two or killed with swords. Some had nothing but sheepskins or goatskins to wear. They were poor. They were mistreated and tortured. The world did not deserve these good people, God says, who had to wander in deserts and on mountains and had to live in caves and holes in the ground. All of them pleased God because of their faith. And you can see from these words, you can start to answer the question, can't you? How high a value does God place on making sure that people have comfortable lives? And the answer is not very. The problem is we live in a world where we're encouraged to give our lives to the pursuit of comfort. Aren't we? Make sure we've got every little bit of financial backing behind us and all the ducks are set up before we risk anything and the the home is safe and the environment around us is safe. That's what we're told to live like. And if we buy into that lie, we can end up saying, look, I've tried to follow God, but he hasn't made my life comfortable. I thought that's what following God was about. And we start pointing the finger at him and saying, God, why haven't you showed up for me? 
I wanted you to give me the comfortable life and you haven't done that. God never promises us the easy life. The stuff he calls us to do is genuinely very demanding. But then, then when he calls us to do these things and it becomes demanding, we never feel more fully alive. And so many of us feel our faith is dusty and, and dormant and boring. It's because we've never stepped out like a sheep amongst a, a pack of wolves. We've never felt what it means to be fully alive, living on the edge, taking a risk. Just at the turn of the millennium, year 2000, scientists made an incredible discovery. They took a, an amoeba, okay, and they placed this little amoeba in an ideal environment for an amoeba. And this ideal environment for amoeba was the right sense of light, the right amount of heat, the right amount of nourishment. They, they made sure this amoeba had no demands, no stress, no problems, no obstacles, no challenges. They gave this amoeba the, the perfect life for an amoeba. Do you know what happened to the amoeba? It died, yeah. It died. And scientists concluded that actually demands and stresses and challenges and change are essential uh, items for growth and for living. And at the end of their report, the scientists' conclusion was this. In the process of changing and meeting demands, uh, sorry, it is in the process of changing and meeting demands that we grow and become fully alive. And too much comfort is a lethal thing uh, to a living being even for an amoeba. And yet so often we chase the comfortable life. So let me ask you this question. Where might God be asking you to step out and take a risk in 2010? Do you know that already? What kind of things is God asking you to do? Maybe God's calling you to a different job. And for years and years and years you've put it off and you know that God's got his hand on you for this and there's an element of risk attached to it. But it's where God wants to redeploy you in the kingdom. And you've backed off. Maybe because you're afraid. You've held back making a decision. Maybe because you're not sure of the outcome. And you know God's behind it. Maybe you're holding back your money because you want to arrange a comfortable life. And God's calling you to give some of that money away to somebody who really needs it. To hear the local church that feeds you. And you've been holding on to it because you just want that comfortable life. And you know that God's been calling you to give it away and you found it hard to prise your fingers off it. Maybe that's where God is asking you to take a risk at the start of a new year. Maybe it's a secret sin. Something that's become addictive to you. And it's certainly beginning to ruin your relationship with your spouse. It's certainly beginning to ruin the relationship with your families and those that love you. And you know, you know, you know that it's beginning to ruin your relationship with God as well. And maybe the shame of it and the guilt of it and the hurt of it seems an an insurmountable mountain in many ways. God is saying at the start of this year, that's the risk I want you to take. To start finding solutions to this. To start bringing other people into your confidence. To start walking through this issue hand in hand with other people that love you. Maybe that's the risk God's asking you to take. Maybe your marriage is feeling stagnant and year upon year it seems to have drifted and got worse and worse and you know if you continue to let it go it's going to fall apart but it's become like an elephant in the room and you've never had the courage to talk about it. Maybe at the start of this year God is saying it's time to have that difficult conversation, that risky conversation and get it sorted. And maybe, I don't know, I don't know you guys, maybe for some of you You've just started out on this whole God search thing. And maybe God is saying to you at the start of this year, the risk I've got in mind for you is that you keep checking out who I am and what I can do in your life. 
And so maybe your risk is to say, how do I get onto one of these alpha courses? How do I make sure that my diary is clear on a Sunday morning so I can be part of this community that's searching for God? What is it for you? What is God calling you to do in 2010 in terms of taking a risk? Okay. Uh, I've you know, completely lost my whole... Oh, here we are. Second, second... <laughs> The second thing I want to talk about, the second thing when I thought about what kind of a church I want to belong to, I know I want to belong to a church where people are prepared to take a risk and not sit in a comfortable environment. The second thing is, I want to belong to a church where people are willing to tell the truth to each other, no matter what the cost. No more pretense, no more lying, a bit of honesty between human beings, a bit of face-to-face. A Business Weekly magazine recently surveyed employees and employers. And they asked them this one simple question. They said to them, what do you value most in each other? What do you value most in your boss? And boss, what do you value most in the people that work with you? And it wasn't their hard work or their diligence. It was honesty. They didn't want people to lie to them. They wanted honesty from each other. They did the same uh, survey with Relate. They asked divorced couples uh, who'd been through the process with Relate. They said, what it t- describe your ideal partner. And out of all the answers, this one came out top all the time. People wanted someone who is honest and could be trusted in every way. It wasn't about how good they were in bed, or about how much money they had, or about how sexy they looked. It was about honesty. Someone I can trust. That's the partner I want. And we know, don't we, that those qualities of truth and honesty are important in any parenting relationship, or any friendship as well. Without those kind of things, we'll never have relationships that last. Last, And you see, the stakes are really high with this. And I don't know, you could well be sitting there thinking, why has he chosen something like truth-telling as an important thing that he wants in a church in 2010? Because the stakes are high with this. I was reading Leadership Magazine. It's a great magazine for leaders. And uh, there's a church leader in America called Bill Hybels. And uh, he wrote this about telling the truth, an article he wrote. He said this. Here's the paragraph. He said, God knew from the beginning of time that without a radical commitment to telling the truth, marriages and families would disintegrate. Friendships would explode. Business dealings would fall apart. And churches would be split by division. I mean, how awful would it be if this place in 2010 started to show the signs of division and split? Do you know, it could. It seriously could. And all that's been built up over the past 30 years or so, is it 30 years you've been together? 30 years. It could just disintegrate if we're not prepared to do the hard work of telling the truth to each other. There's these great verses, aren't there, in Matthew 18, 15, where Jesus teaches us how we should do this. You know, so it says that you should go and seek that person out in private and sort the thing out. So if I've got an issue with Leon or Leon's got an issue with me, I shouldn't go around to this group of people here and say, can I tell you something about Leon? It just drives me nuts. You never guess what he's done to me. Because then you'll all hate Leon as well. And Leon could go to these people over here and say, can I tell you something about Duncan Banks? You'll never believe it. And then you, all you guys hate me. And division starts, split starts. Matthew 18, 15, Jesus says, go, but go in private. I need to be going to Leon and saying, I need to have a chat with you, mate. And Leon should be saying to me, funny enough, I was on my way to talk to you as well. And then we resolve it together in private. If we don't do these things and be honest with each other about these things, this church will find itself in some sticky places. You need, to, you, need, you need to do the hard work of telling the truth 
Because dishonesty and lying does two things. First off, Proverbs chapter 12, verse 22, it ruins our relationship with God. The Lord detests lying lips, but delights in those who tell the truth. I mean, they're strong words. God detests. I mean, if you hate, detest something, I mean, they're strong words. God hates, God detests lying lips because he knows that it causes such division. But he delights in honesty. He delights with those who tell the truth. Secondly, it doesn't just ruin our relationship with God, but Proverbs 15.4 talks about how it ruins our relationship with others. The tongue that brings healing is a tree of life, but a deceitful tongue crushes the spirit. And you would know if you've been lied to how crushed you can often feel at times. And it's not just in the big things, is it? Sometimes it's in the little things. We must do lunch sometime. With no intention ever of having lunch with them. Yeah, 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 I'll I'll pay you back. Probably next week, I'll pay you back. With no intention of ever paying you back. Sometimes it's those little things that when they build up can cause a sense of crushed spirit in us. So how do we become a truth-telling church, really? Well, Paul gives some advice to this young church in Ephesus. Because they were struggling with this. And in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 15 he says this. Love is the key. Love should always make us tell the truth. And the result, if we tell the truth in love, what's the result? Then we will grow in every way and be more like Christ. I want to grow as a Christian. I want to be like Jesus. And it starts with me telling the truth in love. In love. When I tell the truth to someone, when we tell the truth to each other, it must be out of love. It's not just out of vindictiveness. It's not just going around and saying, I think you're a bit too fat. Or you're you're ugly. Or I can't believe you're a leader. You're rubbish. It's not that kind of honest truth-telling. It's in love where we come alongside each other. It's often tough to tell the people who we are close to and around things that they need to hear. It could risk a good relationship, but it's important. Years and years ago, I was involved with Leon in an event called Spring Harvest. And uh, it was the first year that, uh, that the BBC decided to film Songs of Praise at Spring Harvest. And I was involved on stage doing a tiny little piece in the program. Just before, there was, there was me on stage doing something. Then there was a, a worship song. And then there was a fellow called Rob White who was going to speak. He was the speaker on the, uh, on the program. And so I'd finished doing my little bit on stage. I came off while the band was singing a worship song. And I was standing next to Rob White who was waiting to go on. And if you've ever known Rob White, Rob's been to your church. Rob, Rob White, he used to, I think he still might have, he used to have the, his moustache the size of the Isle of Wight under his nose. It was just huge. I mean, it's kind of moustache you could lose a rhododendron bush in. You know, just <laughs> whacking great thing. And obviously he was slightly nervous about the BBC recording and um, he'd blown his nose before he was, he was going out. And I seemed to be the only one backstage that noticed that, that most of the contents of his nose hadn't ended up in the tissue but ended up in his tashy, you see. So... So everybody else looked at it and was pointing, but I just thought it was important to tell the truth. And I said, Rob, you've got this huge bogey in your moustache. And, and, and I risked, because I thought he was going to go, because, you know, he's a leader and he, was a, he could have gone mad with little old man, and he didn't. He looked in the mirror, noticed it, wiped it away, and was really pleased. Now, that's a kind of silly example, but, you know, when, when me and Debbie um, started having kids, I brought Matthew with me, my oldest today, who's 13. When Matthew was, was much younger, and I've got Nathan and Joe as well, two other uh, boys. When our kids were younger, um, we had some really good friends, a guy called Dave and his wife, Louie, and they noticed that we were parenting our kids in a way that 
actually could have turned out to be quite destructive for them. And they were our best friends. And they pulled us to one side and said, can we say something to you about your parenting? And they told us the truth and it hurt. And we got in the car and drove home. I remember Debbie saying to me, who do they think they are that they can say this to us? And after the kind of heat died down, we settled down and we thought, you know, what they've said is absolutely right. And we had to go back to Dave and Louis and say, we're sorry for our reaction. And we're grateful that you took a risk with our relationship. You're our best friends. And you told us the truth. Because otherwise we'd have ploughed our kids into a terrible place. And they stopped us doing that by telling the truth. I want to be part of a church that's prepared to tell the truth to each other. So who do you need to tell the truth to? With a sense of loving kindness as we kick off this year. Maybe it's somebody you know who's beginning to cross the line in another relationship with someone who's not his or her spouse. And you see it going on. You see the signs, don't you? And you worry and you maybe even talk to other people about, I can see where this is going, but you've never talked to them about it. I'm in the middle of that dilemma right now. Someone I know pretty well, I think is getting a little bit too close to someone else. I noticed it over Christmas and I've got to do the job in the next few days of sitting with this guy and saying, I'm worried. And it could ruin everything. It could ruin a good friendship, but I've got to say it. I've got to say it. And maybe for you, it's someone who's uh, living life with destructive patterns and destructive words. And everyone's always said, oh, but that's just them. And maybe God is saying, no, I've got to tell the truth to that person and say, I'm not going to allow them just to be them anymore. I'm not going to allow them to get away with that. They need to know that what they say and the way they act, it's destroying the people around them. It's destroying the family that they're in. It's destroying the people they love. Maybe it's someone who's close to you that you work with and they don't share your belief in God. And you've never had the courage to tell them a truth, to tell them the truth about the most important relationship in your life. Again, Bill Heibel says this, fantastic. He says, uh, uh, recently I became acquainted with a man who is genuinely one of the kindest, most fair-minded men I've ever met. We've had numerous conversations about everything under the sun and I've thoroughly enjoyed everyone. But to date, I've not had the courage to tell him about the most important truth in life. That God loves him and has opened heaven's door to him because of Christ's death on his behalf. He told me that he's never gone to a church and has no spiritual background, yet I have not shared with him even the most basic truths of the gospel of grace. And he comes to the conclusion of saying, what's the matter with me? Who is it you play sport with? Who is it that you hang out with at work? Who is it that you're going to have a pub with? Who is it that you meet on a regular basis? And they're not just acquaintanceships, they're friends. You know them, you know their family, you know their birthdays. And yeah, there's been a passing reference to church, but maybe 2010 is the year when God's saying, tell them the truth. In love, tell them the truth about the most important relationship in your life. Okay, finally, I want to belong to a church where people don't shrink the God they follow. Yeah, I want to belong to a church where people take a risk. I want to belong to a church where people tell the truth. But I want to belong to a church where people don't shrink down the God that they say they follow. Back in 1989, let me explain. 89, um, Rick Moranis came out with the film Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. You remember it? Great movie. And he's a mad scientist and you know, kids get in the way of the ray gun and they turn out a couple of inches tall, you know, and the, Ha ha, the Disney hilarity carries on. Sometimes I wonder whether, you know, we could actually be guilty of saying, 
as Christians, I think I've shrunk my God. I've brought him down to my level. I'll tell you why this is so important. Because if we think that God is too small, we get ourselves in trouble. And the problem is that we can, we can seem fine on the surface. We can stand in church on a Sunday and we can sing the kind of songs we've sung this morning, declaring how great and marvelous and full of rain God is and we want him to reign in us. We can declare those kind of things. We can say those prayers. But we're not, inside, we're not convinced that he's big enough to meet our needs. And so we live with a shrunken God. And if we live with this shrunken God, it means that everything depends on us in life because God is too small to deal with these issues of life that we come across. It means that our mood every day is dictated by our circumstances. Because God is too small to do anything about our circumstances. So our mood is dictated by that. If our God is too small, we'll shrink back from sharing our faith with the people around us. Because we fear rejection. Because it all depends on us sharing our faith. If I start talking to my work colleagues about Jesus and they reject me and I'm left out in the cold, what's going to happen then? Your God is too small if you think that way. Because it depends on you, not on God. We hold back maybe in our giving financially because we're worried about our financial security because our financial security depends on us. God's not big enough to deal with it. We give in to temptation because God is too small to help us and the temptation is too big. If we live with a small God, we'll live small, sad, frightened lives and that's not how God designed you or I to live. If we live with a big God, we'll live adventurous, risk-filled lives full of fearless obedience and passionate caring. Let me, let me just, from, from Isaiah, let me paint a picture of how, God, how big God is for you this morning. So it might just shift your thinking about who God is at the start of this year. Isaiah chapter 40. Look at the picture of, this, of the vastness of God from Isaiah 40. Who else, Isaiah says, has held the oceans in his hands. I mean, if I was to ask you right now to hold your hand out and for me to pour water into your hands, how much could I get in? I, I couldn't get a cup in, definitely. Would you, maybe just a few drops into your hands. The God you follow holds the Atlantic Ocean, the Pacific Ocean, and all the other oceans that you see on the map of the world, all the blue God holds in the palm of his hand. How big is your God? Let's change our perspective on how big he is. The verse goes on. It says this. Who has measured off the heavens with his fingers? Who's measured off the heavens with his fingers? When God created the planets, when God created the universe, and, the, and you know as well as I do all the stats about how far our universe is, and there's more undiscovered than we've actually discovered, how vast the planetary systems are and the universes are. When God built all that and created all that and put all that together. He said, how big should I make it? And then he put his hands up like that and he went, I'll make it that big. I always used to think that here was I on planet Earth and then God was above me in the heavens and all of us were encased in the universe. No, 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 no. God is bigger than the universe. When God created the universe, he said, how big shall I make the stars and the planets and the heavens? I'll make them that big. How big is your God? How big is your God? The verse carries on. Who else knows the weight of the earth or has weighed the mountains and the hills on scales? How big is your God? Isaiah carries on in, in verse 25. He says, to whom, will I, 
To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal? Asks the Holy One. Look up into the heavens. Who created all the stars? He brings them out like an army, one after another, calling each by name. God brings the stars out into the sky, the stars that you and I see. He brings them out like an army, night after night, and he calls each one by name. Again, when our kids were younger, we moved from uh, a town location in Oxford, uh, a place called Banbury, and we moved into the country where we are now in Suffolk. And uh, I grew up in London, so I'm a townie, I'm a city guy, so it was a whole brand new experience going into the country for me. And when our kids were just really wee and we moved up to, uh, to Suffolk, uh, we made friends with farmers. In fact, we made friends with one guy called Ian, who's a duck farmer. And he had these vast sheds full of ducks, and he would grow ducks, I think it takes about 12 weeks, and then they go taken to Mr. Sainsbury's, who sells them to us. Uh, sad, really, isn't it? Um, but Ian invited me and the family and the boys over to see him in the duck farm. And I can always remember little Nathan, who was you know, no older than four or five years, years old, we walked into this huge football pitch size shed, and it was a carpet of little yellow chicks, little yellow ducks. They, they'd been there a couple of days. And uh, the boys were amazed. And Ian was picking them up and putting them on their heads. And the boys were holding loads of them in their arms. And it was, it was good. I've got little pictures of them. You know. I can always remember uh, Nathan picking one of these uh, little ducks up and going across to Ian and saying, Ian? Yes, Nathan. What's this one called? <laughs> and Ian was sharp. Ian was sharp. Oh, he's called Freddy, Nathan. Ah, oh, hello, Freddy. And Nathan wanted And me and Ian carried on talking about duck farming and... Nathan comes back with another little duck. Ian, what's this one called? And Ian was sharp. Ian again, he said, this one's called Derek. And Nathan just came. And he honestly believed, and I think probably, even though he's 12, Nathan still believes that Ian knew every one of his 100,000 ducks by name. How big is your God? The God of heavens brings the stars out every night in the heavens, calls them all by name. How big is your God? Why do we shrink away from some of the risks that God asks us to take? Because our God is too small. We shrink him down. He's the God of the heavens. And he wants to be involved every day with our lives. How big is your God? The church I want to be part of this year is a church where people are prepared to take a risk. And I think you want to be involved in a church, don't you? Where there's a sense of adventure, not stagnation. But hey, do you know the truth? It's not Leon's job and the elder's job to create a sense of adventure. If you want to belong to an adventurous, risk-filled church where you feel like you're lambs, working for this big God amongst wolves, then you're going to have to be that kind of adventurous person. You're going to have to step out and put your feet where you think they don't belong. You're going to have to start traveling to places where you don't feel you belong. I want to be part of a church where people are willing to tell the truth no matter how difficult it is to each other, but to do it with love and care and kindness. I don't want to see another marriage break down. It happens in every church. And the number of times I've sat with people whose relationships are broken down and You know, months, years previously, it was obvious to everyone and no one said it. Tell the truth to people. Don't leave them as they are. I want to be a part of a church like that. And I want to be part of a church that gathers on a Sunday morning and has in mind as they raise their hands and their voices that God is far bigger than they ever imagined.
Let me pray.